0: Well, good afternoon or good evening or good morning, everybody, depending on when you happen to be uh, watching this video. We find ourselves in an interesting time, and um, last week I tried to address that uh, at, at least in some uh, in some way uh, from Philippians chapter 4, addressing just the, the concept of, of, of hope and and uh, not being anxious about things, um, obviously easier said than done, right? But, but uh, this is what the scriptures implore us to do. This week, I think maybe the best thing to do is just get back to some sense of normalcy. And we're going to go back to our text and to our series in Genesis, <clears throat> our beginnings series. And so um, this week, we're going to be um, in uh, chapter 3, ending chapter 3, and uh, moving uh, next week into chapter into chapter four. So when we when last we left you, uh, Adam and Eve had heard uh, of the promise of a seed that would come, and uh, that this seed would bruise the serpent, the, the head of the serpent, um, and the serpent seed and, and the seed of the woman would be at enmity with one another. In fact, God Himself put that enmity between them, uh, so that uh, we would not have this situation, right of of. Um, of the seed of the, of the serpent, uh, in, in confederation with humankind, uh, God places enmity there. There is a a great act of grace that takes place there. And then a few weeks ago, Pastor Nate Gast walked us through, um, then the punishment, uh, for the woman and the punishment, uh, for the man, for Adam, uh, the woman would receive her judgment. That is pain and childbearing She would still have a desire for her husband. Pastor Nate kind of walked through that. If you didn't get a chance to be here, you can go back and watch that that sermon. There's quite a bit of debate over what that desire is all about. Pastor Nate uh, walked us through through that. Adam, in turn, receives his judgment. That judgment is a curse uh, on uh, the Earth, on his toil, uh, that the Earth would not respond to him like the earth had had uh, been prepared to respond to humankind, there would be a sparse return for his labor, and then ultimately death in the dust going back to the dust by which Adam had had been uh, created by which he'd been created so so the the judgment had come upon uh, the the serpent, the judgment had come upon the woman, the judgment had come upon the man as well, and uh, today we're going to look at kind of the The um, the outgrowth of that, what that leads to. We're going to talk about some of of God's grace in that, uh, obviously some of God's judgment in that as well, and then turn to what our hope is in that. And so let me just start as we normally do with a word of prayer, and then we'll read the text, and we'll get into into our our message for today. So Father, meet us in this unique way as I speak to a camera, and as our congregation and others uh, listen in their homes, uh, listen in small groups, listen in their vehicles. Uh, Lord, minister to us even in this unique format, even in this unique day. God, help us to be your church, your people, uh, those who are called by your name. So minister to us right now, Lord. Uh, Speak to us, Holy Spirit, through this text. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord. So let me just stand as we normally do. If you feel like you'd like to do that and you're at home, you can stand. If you're in your car, I would advise against it. But uh, I'm going to stand as we, uh, as we read the text for today. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, the east, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. And so let's look first at God's grace in this situation. God's grace in that Eve will bear children. God's grace in that there is clothing to cover uh, the disgrace of the man and the woman. Adam uh, provides a personal name here uh, for his wife. He calls her Eve. In the Hebrew it is the word chava, uh, great Uh, Hebrew word, Chava. it sounds like almost every Hebrew word is kind of a great word, they all just sound so exotic, but her name is Eve or Chava, and it means life giver, or it means living, it can also mean breath, it can mean to give, to give breath and the rationale for this, Moses tells us as the author here, is that she was the mother of all the living it's interesting here, right, that, that there's a past tense here, that she was the mother of all the living. She hasn't borne any children yet. And yet um, we see this promise because in 315 uh, the promise was given that there would be a seed from this woman. And, and we assume Adam and Eve have overheard this promise as well. And so Adam names his wife and says, She is living. She will she will bear the living. She will give breath to all the living. And so we ask why, why in the past tense here, and, and scholars, of course, discuss this. It could very well be just as simple as uh, uh, Moses is writing this many, many years later, obviously. And he's speaking in the past tense that she was the mother of all the living. She's the one who gave birth to, to, to Cain and to Abel and to Seth. And she is the mother of, of all the living. And uh, so it could be just he's looking back past tense and saying that's what she was. That's probably not likely, uh, given the context and how the Hebrew language uh, works. What's most likely here is what we have is called a prophetic perfect. Uh, A prophetic perfect, uh, which simply means uh, something is written in the past tense because it's so certain that it will take place in the future. In English, we use the word proleptic for that. It's proleptic language. Speaking in the past tense or speaking as if... A future event is so certain that we may speak of it as an event that has already taken place. And so that's likely what's th- uh, taking place here. The man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. There's a prophetic perfect here. Uh, this is so certain. The promise of God is so certain that, that Adam is able to name her, uh, looking to the future as if it is, is actually the past. And so again, I think this takes us back to, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, Adam and Eve hear this promise before uh, the curse is given. Before the serpent is cursed, Adam and Eve will hear this promise. There will be a seed of uh, the woman, an offspring for the woman. So there is this hope that comes before judgment. And I tried to stress this some weeks ago, that hope comes before judgment, that, that promise comes here before, before the judgment. So God is saving Adam and Eve as it were through judgment. Judgment on the serpent and his seed. They're hearing this judgment that's being pronounced on the serpent. Judgment on this first couple as well, on Adam and Eve, as a measure of discipline for their disobedience. And so it demonstrates not just God's justice here, but it also demonstrates God's love. And it it demonstrates that God loves this first couple because he is disciplining them, just like it happens in any healthy home, right? We discipline children that we love. And so this is clearly judgment, but it is also a sense of God demonstrating his love and his commitment to Adam and Eve because of the judgment, because of what has taken place, because there is now judgment on Adam and Eve, because they will be banished from the garden. There is a necessity now for mercy and grace. There is a necessity that God will, will demonstrate mercy and grace in response to sin in response to rebellion, in response to disobedience. And so God will do that. He will discipline Adam and Eve. He will he will curse the serpent. He will discipline the first couple and he will pass judgment on them. But that judgment is also in some ways an act of mercy and grace as well, because God ultimately will provide um, freedom from sin in Jesus Christ, in the seed of the woman. And so as we're going to soon see, Adam and Eve are going to have to leave the garden. There's no ifs ands or buts about that. They are going to be compelled to leave the garden. But God is not going to abandon them outside the garden. He's not he's not sending them out and saying you're on your own and good luck to you. He's he's banishing them, but he's going with them. He he is not going to to leave them as they leave the garden it re- re- reminds me of the the situation with Moses back in Exodus chapter 33 where, where in Exodus chapter 32 we see this the story of the golden calf right the people of Israel Moses is up on the mountain um and uh and and as he comes back down there is the sound of of war in the in the camp or at least that's what Joshua thinks but 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 uh But Moses says, no, it's not the sound of war. It's the sound of revelry that I hear. And the people have given themselves over to sin and licentiousness. And they've rebelled against God and they've rebelled against against Moses as well. And in chapter 33, uh, things have have now been kind of put back together. There's been some judgment in the camp and, and things have been put back together. And God tells Moses, now I want you to lead these people. And if you remember, Moses cries out to God and says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, uh, not if you don't go with us. Don't send us from here if your presence does not go before us, Lord God. Uh, how will people know that I am your unique, the unique one that you have called to lead this people if you don't go with me? how will um, How will the nations know, God, that That these people are unique if your presence doesn't go before. So Moses is very clear. He says to God, do not send us out if your presence will not go with us. Yes, judgment has been enacted. We have rebelled. There has been sin. And you are now sending us uh, uh, out. But go with us. Let your presence be there with us. Because we cannot survive if you do not go Uh, before us And, and God responds to Moses and again this isn't a direct quote but essentially he says to Moses I will go with you my presence will go with you and here's why Moses because I know your name I know who you are I know your character, and I'm going with you. I will go before you, and I will go before the people. Although I am judging you, I will go before you. My presence will be be with you. Very similar, I think, here with Adam and Eve. You will leave the garden, but my presence will go with you as you leave the garden. And so Adam and Eve, they're not gaining the freedom that the serpent offered to them, right? They're not getting what the serpent promised them. They're actually forfeiting their freedom now. Uh, The the, the freedom they had in obedience to God is now given over to slavery. It is now given over to their fallen natures. It is now given over to a fallen world that was commensurate with their fall, with the fall of of Adam as the, the great steward over God's creation. They've forfeited their freedom. The serpent offered them freedom. Um, that they would, they would know things right and wrong. They would be like God. And it, it turns out that that's not the case here. They forfeit that and they now are compelled uh, to leave the garden. Uh, similar to what Peter says to uh, the false prophets of his day and, and certainly applying to the false prophets of our day as well. And that is they promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves to depravity or to corruption. They offer you freedom. Come along with me. Know the freedom that I know. And our response really needs to be, you don't know freedom. The freedom you're offering is not freedom. It's not freedom to us. We forfeit our freedom as as obedient servants of God when we give way to false teaching, when we gave way to disobedience. We know slavery in that, not not freedom. And so there is this promise, come, be like me, do what I'm doing, and you'll know my freedom. And our response really needs to be, you don't know freedom. You don't know the freedom that I know as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who is obedient to Jesus Christ. And so there's God's grace in the fact that Eve is going to bear children. She's going to be the mother of all the living. And as she's the mother of all the living, God is going to add a blessing to her, to her seed and to her offspring. But there's also God's grace in the fact that God is going to give them now clothing to cover their disgrace, their nakedness, the scripture says. Verse 21 tells us that Adam and Eve are are given their first covering of real clothing. Skins from slain animals are given to them. And so like everything else for Adam and Eve... Everything they have has been given to them. Everything in the garden was given to them. Now, even in their disobedience, what they need is given to them. Uh, animals are slain, and they are now clothed with, with proper clothing to cover their nakedness and to cover their disgrace. There are some who will say, this is the first example of animal sacrifice. Uh, it gives way to the sacrificial system. That is unlikely here contextually, although certainly it does demonstrate that with sin, there is shedding of blood, right? Uh, animals have to die in order that the disgrace of human beings might be covered. And so it's not that there is no correlation here. I would simply say it doesn't appear to be a one-to-one correlation that now we know that there's going to be a sacrificial system put into place. But the reality is, is that Adam and Eve um, need something to cover their, their, their disgrace. And God provides that for them. He always gives what is necessary. Even in sin and rebellion, God gives what is necessary, reminding me and maybe you as well from Luke chapter 15 the story of the prodigal son right the prodigal says I want uh, I want what my father has I want what he owes me I'm going to take it and I'm going to go out and live my life and he goes out and does that and we know the story Uh, there's a famine in the land he loses everything he decides it's better to come back home uh, where, my, where even my father's servants are better cared for than I am cared for here. He returns home and you remember this story and of course this is not the main part of the of the story. Uh, the main part of the story is really about the older son uh, and, and, and how the Pharisees are acting like the older son but that doesn't dismiss the reality of the, of the story of this younger son who has rebelled. And he comes home and while he's still some distance from the home, the father representing God sees him, runs to the son and if you remember what he does, the son tries to repent And even before he really gets a chance to, the the father is ready to receive him. The son does repent, but the father is ready to receive him. And what does he say? He says, take my son and put clothing on him. Bring a robe. Give him a ring. Put sandals on his feet. This son of mine is not a slave. He's my child. He's my son. And I will clothe him. I will give him what is necessary. And so we see this as as a theme, I think, in Scripture. God gives us what is necessary, even in our sin, even in our rebellion, God's grace is there. So God's grace comes to us before judgment. And, and Adam and Eve, although they are banished, they will not leave naked because God is going to be with them. Friends, it's it's like us when we sin. It's like us when we rebel. Uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we, we sin, we struggle. Um, we are disciplined because God God loves us. And sometimes we're sent away, quite frankly. Sometimes we we know what it's like to be an outcast from the church, from our friends. Uh, from even our family at times. We know what it's like to be an outcast, but we need to remember that God will always receive us back. He will always bring us back if we are willing to come. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us about a man who has sinned grievously. I mean grievously. You can look at that if, if you're not familiar with the story, but there's been a significant amount of, of public sexual sin in this man's life. And Paul, as he speaks to the Corinthians from a distance, tells them, I want you to deliver this man out. I want him out of the church. He needs to be expelled from the church. And I want you to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Or In other words, I want him to be disciplined now by the enemy. I want him to know what it's like to not know the favor of God. But there's a reason for that. Why do I want you to do that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord so that he will return, so that he will come to his senses. Friends, we have to come to our senses. We have to wake up and realize that our God is a gracious God and that when we sin, he is always willing to receive us back and that in our discipline, God is loving us and caring for us and treating us like sons, treating us like, like children. And, and, and the reality of this is that this is a, this is a distinguishing mark of the grace of God we may be sent out, but God will receive us back. And the goal is that we may be disciplined, maybe even by the enemy, maybe even by the world, that we might know the the discipline that comes from being away from the body of Jesus Christ, from our brothers and sisters in Christ. The goal is that our spirit might be saved on the final day, that things will turn, that we will return back to God. So God's grace, that Eve will bear children, God's grace, that there is clothing to cover their disgrace, and then God's judgment there is banishment and there is barring here verse 22 let me just read this then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever right now he's leading up to what he's going to do lest the man can reach out lest the woman reaches out and takes from the tree of life they're going to have to be banished therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man he drove him out and so there is judgment here and god begins this in verse 22 with kind of a dialogue with himself right let us let us right. The man has become like us, and so what does he mean there? What does he mean us? As in, uh, he and the angels? Does he mean us as in him and some sort of divine council? Uh, both of those are possible. I think it's less likely about us being God and the angels, uh, because there really doesn't seem to be any compelling reason to think that, that men thinking like angels is problematic biblically. God says that that. Um, the man has become like one of, like one of us. Is he speaking to a divine council? There is some evidence for that biblically, um, although I think really the simplest answer here is that what what God is speaking of here, what we're seeing here, is a glimpse into a, into a triune God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the personhood uh, of 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 the Godhood, um, uh, or the Godhead. I'm sorry, we, we don't know this for a fact. We we just don't know. Um, some would say, no, this is clearly a, a speaking to the divine council. This is clearly God speaking to the angels. Um, others would say, no, this is, this is Trinitarian. Others would say this is what they call the plural of majesty, right? God is a God, and so he uses us like a, the president might speak of us when he speaks of the nation. I think uh, to contextually and given all the evidence, I think the best evidence is that this is a Trinitarian formula. The reality is, is that the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity does not rise and fall on this text, Uh, We have many, many other texts that we would turn to uh, to speak about the Trinity. But I think this is likely what's happening here for what it's worth if you're interested in that. And there's certainly more research that you could do on that yourself. Uh, to find out, but verses twenty three and twenty four, there are two steps that are taken now to execute judgment in response to Adam's sin. Right, we continue to speak of the man here. We continue to speak of Adam because he is the steward. He has headship over creation. He has headship over his wife Eve, and so this is a response to Adam's sin. So there's two steps that are taken. The first step is that God drives out humankind from paradise. Adam and Eve, as I said before, do not leave of their own free will. They are driven out of the garden. They're not gently escorted to the east gate. They are told to leave and they are banished from the garden and so God will drive them out of paradise. And the second step of of judgment that is executed is that God's now going to block re-entry into the garden. The east gate is closed. It's guarded by mighty ones by by cherubim. And these mighty ones are going to ensure that Adam and Eve and none of their progeny are going to return through the gate into into Eden. There is a fla- a flashing sword, a flaming sword that is going back and forth so that they are not able to regain access. And so it's as if there's only one way in and one way out of the garden. And we don't know that for a fact, right? But, but it's as if there's one way in and one way out. Uh, later in the tabernacle in the wilderness that Moses uh, and, and the Levites will establish and that God will give them directions uh, to, to set up as a tent of meeting for the people in the, in the wilderness. There will be an entryway from the east and it will be guarded by the Levites. The scriptures tell us in Numbers chapters 1 and 2. It will be guarded by by God's priests. They will guard the entryway. And they are instructed to strike down anyone who would unlawfully approach the sanctuary of God. The sancta of God. If they approach it unlawfully, they are to be struck down. And so God guards what is holy. He guards what is holy from what is evil. And so re-entry into paradise is not just difficult, it is actually resisted by God. God is resisting their return. God actively excludes sinners from paradise. Friends, humankind cannot save themselves. We can't save ourselves. We cannot just find our way back to Eden. We cannot just find our way back into God's favor. The way is blocked and it can only be entered through Christ now you might picture you know uh, Lord of the Rings right Gandalf is on the bridge and the great whatever the fire demon is that's trying to come across and he he screams out the way is blocked or the way is closed you shall not pass picture Moses as it were there the way is blocked you shall not pass. You will not enter in through, through lawfulness. You will not enter, through, enter in through anything other than the grace of God. Both Old Testament and New. We now know that grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. The way has been blocked by God. He is resisting evil. He is resisting evil, penetrating and coming back into, into paradise. It will be entered only through Christ. Friends, unrepentant sin is always something that leads to separation. It always leads to separation. Look what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, God is not incapable of of saving us. He's not incapable of hearing our cries for mercy. It is not dull. His hand is not shortened. His ear is not dull. That it cannot hear. But your iniquities, he says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. Right? There's this separation because of sin, Isaiah says. And there in Isaiah 59, he continues on and explains what, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Judah that, that is creating this separation between God and his people. There's blood on their hands. They're not caring for their neighbors. They're not doing the things that God has called them to do. But that chapter ends with hope in verse 20 He says, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. Zion, the holy hill in Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, where the temple was built. A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression, to those who turn from their sin. The Redeemer is coming, and he's going to bring hope, and he will will open the way back into paradise. He will make it possible for us to be received back from our exile, to be received back from our banishment. If you look at Luke chapter 3, we see here where John the Baptist is preparing the way. He's preparing the way for for the coming Messiah. It's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Luke tells us. And and then John comes, and he is preaching in the wilderness, right? He's preaching repentance and, and baptism unto repentance, a voice crying out in the wilderness, Make straight your paths. And the crowds are coming to him, verse 7 says. And he says, therefore, to the crowds that come to him to be baptized, you're a brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from this coming wrath? You're you're the seed of the serpent here. You are a brood of vipers. Who has told you to come and and, and, and to be saved? And they say, but we're Abraham's children. And John says, don't tell me about being Abraham's children. God can raise up from these rocks children for Abraham. And, and, And the crowds say, what shall we do? And John says, I want, you to, I want you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to repent from your sins. And, and, and I want you to bear fruit. I want it to be demonstrated in what you are actually doing. And so he gives them some examples. If you've got two tunics, give one to somebody else. If you're a tax collector, collector only collect what you should be collecting. If you are a soldier, do not exhort people, uh, money from people. Do what is right. Uh, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. And it says the people are in expectation and they're questioning, is this the Messiah? And John tells them plainly, I am not the Messiah, the one who comes after me that I'm preparing the way for. I can't even hold his sandals. I could not tie the thongs on his shoes. I'm not worthy to do any of these things. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm baptizing you, John says, with water from the Jordan River. But the one who's coming after me will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And he's got his winnowing fork in his hand, this fork that was used to take the wheat and throw it up into the air so that the wind could take uh, the the chaff and blow it away and the heavier seed would fall, the grain would fall back to the ground. He has a winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, this is hard stuff. This is hard teaching from John the Baptist. But look what Luke says here in verse 18 of chapter 3. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He preaches good news. In other words, Luke is saying, this is good news. And we say, that doesn't sound like any good news I've heard, at least not lately. But it is good news, friends. God is calling us back from our exile. He's saying, come back. I wasn't wasn't abandoning you there. I'm disciplining you there. I'm calling you back to me here. I will give you all that you need. Uh, There is grace. There is mercy and abundance here. Come back. The good news, friends, is that we need to know the bad news. And you've heard me say this so many times. We need to hear the bad news. We need to know who we are. We need to know who we are in Adam so that we might know who we might be in Christ. We need to return from from our our insensible ways. We need to repent, and we need to return to Christ. This is the hope that, that we have. And so this hope is real, friends. There is a return from exile. Christ has come. The seed of the woman and our champion of the human race has secured a way for us back into the garden, back into paradise, figuratively, and I think literally one day as well. Back into paradise as well. We are now with Christ. If you you are in Christ, if you're born again, you're hidden in Christ. Your life is there with him. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in sin, friends, even when we were, were separated from God, because he is rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, he saved us and raised us up and seated us with him, speaking there of God, in the heavenly places, in his son, Jesus. God has raised us up, friends. We are there with him. We are there positionally, we say, theologically. We're, we're Although we're here slugging it out on earth, we are positionally in Christ. God has already done it for us. Jesus has finished what needs to be done for those of us who are born again. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for by grace we have been saved, he says there in Ephesians chapter 2. What a great chapter, what a great hope that gives to us Colossians 3. So set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand, not on the things of earth, right? Great teaching for us in this day, right? Set our minds on things above. We're seeing things um, um, unravel, right? We're seeing things unravel. Uh, Nobody wants to retire today. Uh, Everything is unraveling. Uh, I suspect things will, we'll see normalcy again. I don't believe this is the end. I think we'll see normalcy again, but, but goodness, do we need to understand that we need to be looking to the future and not to our present as if our present will offer us any great lasting hope. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're hidden there with Christ in God. When Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You will also appear with him in paradise, friends. I will appear with Christ in paradise. Friends, the tree of life is guarded, but not forever forever. It is guarded, but it is not guarded forever. Christ has torn that curtain, right? It is finished, and the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. There is a way now. There is no separation now in Christ Jesus. This this, this heavy curtain that was embroidered, incidentally, with, with uh, pictures of cherubim, of mighty ones who are guarding the inner sancta, the sanctuary of God, it is torn from top to bottom. We now have access to God. We have access to now to the Father through Jesus Christ, friends. This is great hope. There's great hope. God gives grace in the garden. He gives, he gives grace to Adam and Eve. Uh, there will be a, 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 an offspring, there will be life, and, and Adam gets it, and so he names his wife uh, the living or breath. And, and there's grace that God will, will, will clothe them and that God will care for them. There is judgment in, in the banishment and the barring, but there is hope, friends, in the return. From exile for us. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Nature is mortal. Nature is mortal. We will outlive her. When all the suns and nebula have passed away, you and I will still exist. You and I will still be here. Nature, he says, is only the image, it is the symbol, but it is the symbol that Scripture has invited us to use. He says, We are summoned in through nature, beyond her. Into that splendor which she fitfully reflects. The, the, The fallen world still fitfully reflects the glory and the splendor of what God has done for us in creation. We will see it renewed one day, but it still fitfully reflects that. God is inviting us beyond that, beyond nature, beyond the symbol of nature. Into that splendor which nature fitfully reflects. And in there, he says, in beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. Beyond this nature, friends, right? when, we, when, we, when we shuffle off this mortal coil, as we say, when, when we meet Christ in the clouds, when our bodies are resurrected gloriously, as the promise is there, Christ is the first fruit of that. Friends, we're going to eat of the tree of life. And we don't have it just on the word of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a wonderful Christian and a great writer. But we have it on a much more definitive word than that. So let me close with this from Revelation chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 22, verse 14. Behold, I am coming to you soon, bringing my recompense with me, bringing with me all that I've earned, bringing with me all that I have acquired, Jesus says, through my death and resurrection, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end, he says. Blessed are those who wash their robes, friends. Wash your robes in the blood of Christ. Wash your robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Repent. Know what it is to come back from your exile, friends. Know what it's like to come back from your your slavery to sin and to know freedom in Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates, friends. So that we can eat of the tree of life, that we might enter back into the city of God through the gates because they're, they're guarded no longer for those of us who are in Christ. Friends, our hope and our only hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember that this week. Remember that this week. God is saving us through judgment. God is saving us and offering us grace and hope. Know that hope this week in Jesus Christ, my friends. Let me pray. Let me pray to to uh, send you on your day, whatever day you're, you're watching this. Lord God, minister to us as a church family. God, minister to our missionaries who probably are wondering what's going to happen uh, in terms of, of their, their support and in terms of, what, of how they're going to possibly get back home and all kinds of other things that, that may be taking place for them. Lord, minister to our church family that we might know we are yours, Lord God, and that we belong to one another, that we might continue to sense this unity in the body of Christ here, Lord God. Bless us as we go into this week, Lord God. Minister to our our country. Minister to our leaders. Minister to, to your people across the globe who are suffering, so many of them, in so much more of a profound way than most of us are here. Minister to your body. Minister to your church. Minister to us, we pray. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.